Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Josip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with Yussi. What's up? Hey, Toby. Dylan Holidays here. And I did something that I, I've, I've been meant to do for quite some time. Somehow, accidentally, I had some social media apps on my phone, and I was flipping through those, like Twitter and LinkedIn and whatnot, and I figured... I don't really need this app on the phone because I can just walk to my home office if I need to look something on social media. So I uninstalled all but one social media application on my phone. And suddenly, when you have this, you know, five minute time of nothing in your life, you're maybe preparing dinner and, and you don't have anything else going on, you, you occasionally bring your phone and start flipping through the newsfeed or, or whatever. And now, I'm not really doing that anymore. And it wasn't really a problem, but I was frustrated at myself that I, I would, I would li- idly start doing something like this that I didn't mean to do. So this is my social experiment in not using social media applications on the phone, but just on the desktop. And let's see how it goes. Yeah, that's a good experiment for sure. I also stopped my or disabled my Facebook account maybe two, three years ago now. It's been some time. And I recall as soon as I did that, I pulled up the phone someday, just kind of go check something out or just I didn't really have anything in mind. It's just you do this on routine. You pull up the phone and you check if there's a notification for something. Usually there isn't or there is, but you don't care because it's not important. So I I realized after about a week that I stopped doing it. And then that was actually a very liberating feeling. So I understand why you're doing that experiment. And and I think you actually disabled your Facebook account prior to to me. So perhaps you had the same experience then as well. Yeah, with Facebook, even though I really liked using it, I, I felt it was taking too much of my focus and of my time. And I disabled my account, I think, a little less than three years ago. And for the first two months, I would often have this, this situation that something was happening in my life. And I felt, oh, I need to share this on Facebook, but I'm not there anymore. And, and now I think this was the last step for me. So this is not to say that I'm not using social media apps or social media services. I'm still using those. But I felt that when I use them, I will give them the time, perhaps five or 10 minutes, and then I will close them on the desktop and and focus on something else. And the phone, I felt, was was the last device that was sort of slightly stealing my time, even if I was giving that time voluntarily. But it's, it's been a couple of days now without the applications. And now when I pick up the phone, I'm like, what do I do with the phone? I can take pictures, I can browse the net, but that's mostly it. And I'm, I'm sort of happy for now, but perhaps next week when we record the episode, <laughs> um, I've, I've reinstalled all the applications because I, I, I felt I had no need to use the phone and I wanted to use the phone more. <laughs> you should get like a, an app for recipes or for barbecues or something where you can actually make better use of it. <laughs> that's a good idea. So that's perhaps top of mind for me. How about for you? 
So for me, I bought a portable air condition. So there's a heat wave currently in Scandinavia. And I bought this actually a few weeks ago because we had one day where we had 31 degrees Celsius and it was excruciating, especially in my new home office. If you've tuned in before to the show, you know, I recently moved. I have a new house and I'm working from the garage and the garage uh, ceiling is not insulated or isolated. So whenever the sun comes out on top of it, it's black tar on the roof. So that heats up this room to about 40 degrees Celsius, which is really hot. Um, so obviously you can't sit in here working. So I got these um, lightweight kind of air condition. So that's well-invested money for sure. And it can cool down the entire home office in about five minutes or the largest room in the house in about 10 minutes. So it's definitely a sound investment. Uh, and I'm super happy about it, um, especially given the circumstances we have right now. But what kind of sucks is I realized after I bought it, it was fairly expensive because everyone needs one at the moment. So the prices go up. What's a bit disappointing is I got home, I installed it. It makes a lot of noise because the portable ones apparently have 500% noise level. It's a ridiculous amount of noise, uh, which... In the end, it's fine as long as I get the temperature down. But then I realized there's a lot of new portable air conditioning units that came into one of the shops that you can control using your phone, using schedules, and you can kind of build IoT. You can integrate with it. And, and I kind of just missed that. So I, saw, I, I now see that I lost an opportunity to do home automation where it really would benefit the entire family and I would have a fun spare time experiment uh, or project. So I will have to suffice going up to the air condition unit and push the button, start it and let it run. And that's okay. It was just, would, would have been fun to do the IoT approach and, you know, Wi-Fi connect it and commandeer it, if you will, with uh, schedules from the phone. So I'm slightly envious here because it's been hot in Finland as well. Today, I think we had our all-time highest temperatures throughout the country, plus 34 degrees. And I have zero idea how much that is in Fahrenheit. So apologies to our US-based audience. Perhaps it's close to 100, but I can't be certain. I'm, I'm, I'm not really complaining, though. I, I like it's warm. But at the same time, I, I realize that I, I, ha I have to change my shirt five times a day because you start sweating so much because it's so hot. Yeah. Alrighty. So today, this is episode, I think this is episode 91. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've, I lost track already because we've, we've done so, so many of this lately. So episode 91 on Azure updates. And we do this sort of episode perhaps every four weeks or so together together all of the different Azure updates, announcements, new releases that we feel might be interesting for the audience. So we've collected a bunch of these. Which one would, would, would you like to highlight first? So on my end today, I have collected quite a few developer-oriented updates. They have made some updates to their features and services that I think are worthy of mentioning. I went through a long list of updates and there's a lot of things that are interesting to take a look at. But in order for us to kind of condense it down and fit it into this format, I've picked some of the ones that I think are most interesting. And the first one is in GA. So it is 
available now to use in production uh, for developers. And that's session and cache provider using Azure Cosmos DB. Now, in the past, when I built my distributed cloud computing and, and my different different systems, I often relied on a distributed cache. So an IE distributed cache provider, perhaps the Azure Cache for Redis, which is something that I used a lot, and also SQL Server, I've used that. And then, of course, the, uh, the different types of in-memory caches and whatever. But when you're looking at distributed caching, you really want something that scales. And even if the web app number one goes down, or one instance of them, the, the memory isn't lost, you actually have that in your distributed cache, which usually is a database or a data storage of some form. In this case, you can enable distributed caching with Azure Cosmos DB. So in the code, you would go, for example, in ASP.NET, if you do .NET Core development, you would do services.add Cosmos cache. That's it. And then you have cache options with connection strings. You know, what kind of container do you want to connect to? create if not exists. So if that container does not exist, should you create it or not? Then you can define the session and how it should work with services.addSession, like the idle timeout. And if you want to set the cookie is essential to true or false, whatever, all these things are now super easy. So you can just plug them in. So that's my first update. If you are a developer working with .NET, uh, usually .NET Core these days, uh, or .NET 5, or even .NET 6, if you're a preview, then the session and cache provider for Azure Cosmos DB might be interesting. Now, the reason I think this is interesting is the more you can cache, the more money you can save, right? And I think we talked about that in a couple of episodes. Um, one episode was about where we touched on the cost of Cosmos DB, and the cost can be high for Cosmos, depending on how many transactions and whatever you do with Cosmos, of course. And in that episode, I recall, we talked about Azure Cache uh, with Redis and Azure Cache with SQL Server and different types of distributed caching where you can use that to save a lot of the database transactions going back and forth. Same thing here. So even if it's based on Azure Cosmos DB, a cache worked like a, a key value peer. And that's a lot quicker and a lot less expensive queries to do than to make an actual database query to return uh, live data from the database. So even if Cosmos in itself can be pricey, uh, running the distributed cache on top of that should, if you design that correctly, put the costs down as well and also increase the performance. So if you do work with Cosmos and you're looking at a caching provider, maybe you have a different one, it does make sense to at least take a look and evaluate if this can be a fit for you because then you can consolidate and get everything under the same kind of umbrella so you don't have to have a caching provider in SQL or Redis or something else, and then have your actual data over in Cosmos DB. Uh, entirely up to you, but now you at least know, if you did not before, that the session and cache provider using Azure Cosmos DB is generally available in Azure. I'm always really happy to see new innovations for Azure Cosmos DB because the service itself is great and, and they perhaps could have just left it there and said, well, it's an amazing database with a couple of different providers, feel free to use it. But I, I feel that every week and every month, they keep adding these new innovations on top of Cosmos DB that sort of allow you to build on the knowledge and experience you have on Cosmos DB and continue using that further and further forward within the same ecosystem. 
Yep. So on my side, um, this is perhaps more for IT pros, and it's an interesting service, and it's now generally available, and the service is called Azure Image Builder Service, and it allows you to create baseline virtual machine images. And in on-premises, traditionally, you've, you've had different sort of similar services, uh, like Windows deployment services and, and such, but this is an Azure-based service and it supports all major linux and windows os images but the distinction here is that the base image the initial image you start your build process from and you can utilize azure devops or do this manually or use templates or use scripting the base image has to be one of the uh, available ones on on the marketplace so you're not going to pick up an image from on-premises from your USB stick, but you're actually selecting one of the aforementioned major operating system images. Then you apply your customizations and whatever configurations you like in that VM image. And that will be your golden image, which will be stored in the Azure Shared Image Gallery. And then from there, your users, your... your uh, developers, your IT pros, they will utilize those images that, that you've customized and configured for them. And they will spin up VMs based on those images. And this is built on top of HashiCorp's Packer product. And I, I have to admit, I've never used Packer. Have you used that? No, never. So I, I did a super quick read, and, and which is consultant lingo, meaning... I did a quick Google search and, and I read the first sentence I could find. And it's a multi-platform service allowing you to build different sort of images. So it's interesting that the Azure-based service is based on that. So there's some similarities in there. The, the main perhaps limitation here is that only generation one type of Hyper-V images are supported. But the idea here is that you have a builder service that you can programmatically or through scripts or templates or the Azure portal, you can command and, and bring your customizations and produce your images that you will use throughout your Azure subscriptions and uh, through your needs. And I did look up the cost for this and it mentions on Microsoft Docs that there's cost involved, but they are similar to the cost if you would simply build your custom image by hand, not utilizing a service. So I couldn't find a specific uh, line item on the pricing itself, but I could find that there's some small costs involved with storage and applying your customizations. But this is an interesting service. I, I haven't tried this myself yet, but now since it's generally available, perhaps this is something uh, we will we will have a further look in a future episode. Yeah, interesting. Like I think we talked already in the last episode before this one, the previous one, I think we talked about VMs a, a little bit and I don't use them a lot in, in our organization, uh, but this is definitely something that makes it easier. So when you don't spend every day building VMs and whatever, then something just named Azure Image Builder Service will obviously be a, a good fit for me to take a look at whenever I need to uh, kind of standardize that. 
So on my side, the next update is another one for developers where this is in preview and that's Azure Service Bus. So you probably have worked or at least are familiar with Azure Service Bus. You can do all, all sorts of things. Usually it's about sending messages, just like in an Azure storage queue, you send a message, you put something into the, the queue and then something picks it up, for example, a function app or a container or whatever. So some, some kind of consumer to read that message. So with Azure Service Bus, uh, in preview now, you have support for large messages. And now if you work with Service Bus or if you work with Azure Queues, you know there's a limit to the size of a message that you plug into the queue. Uh, and that is previously one megabyte limit. Now in the premium tier of Azure Service Bus, and I think that's worth repeating, this is for the premium tier. So this is not something that is rolling out for everyone. So in the premium tier, you now have 100 megabyte limit. So that is worth mentioning because, you know, a lot of the projects I've taken a look at, uh, a lot of the times I was in discussions with someone about, should you go to Azure Service Bus? Should you use a storage queue on a table or a storage account? Should you use something else like a third party service altogether? Uh, you know, for your messaging and, and building up all the queues and everything that is like asynchronously handled in a distributed workload. And also if you already have legacy systems working with perhaps messages in some kind of way, you know, some, some brokers sending messages back and forth and those are bigger than one megabyte, well, then you could not move to Azure Service Bus unless you started splitting the logic and splitting those messages down into multiple messages, which is what we did for a lot of our things. But now you can enable legacy workloads using larger message payloads or you know, other enterprise message brokers can now migrate to Service Bus a lot easier because that limitation gets removed on the premium tier. So instead of like re-architecting and, and redeveloping and redesigning some of the things you have, if this has been your main blocker, and I know it has for several customers uh, in the past, at least I don't know what the state of that is right now, but I would expect the same challenge exist. Some of the organizations and, and myself included have split the logic down to multiple messages below one megabyte. But if you still have the challenge, then this is a good update where you using Azure Service Bus on the premium tier can get 100 megabyte sized messages. Doesn't mean that you always have a hundred megabyte, but the limit is increased. Meaning that if your messages are no two or three megabytes, they're gonna work. And that's a big difference. You don't have to do a refactoring exercise and you know split everything down and break the logic. You can use whatever you have, like your legacy system, or if you're using a different third-party message broking system, you can easier migrate it to Azure Service Bus if that's what you want to do. So I think that's just worth noting because I, I know a lot of people working with Service Bus, but also working with Azure storage accounts and queues uh, with you know, kind of the same outcome in mind, but everyone needs to live with the one megabyte limit. Uh, so if you don't want to have that, then Service Bus might be something to take a look at. But again, the price of an Azure storage account is close to nothing. And the price of Azure Service Bus will, especially on the premium tier, as the name entails, it's premium. It's going to come with a price tag. Uh, so at least you know, uh, you can take a look at it. I think it's an important update. Uh, if you work in this space with distributed solutions and you are sending messages across different brokers, it uh, doesn't mean that you have to use it. 
I'm not using it. I don't need to use it now because everything I have has already been split to the atomic level. So our messages in our queues are super small. So we never have to go back to one megabyte or bigger messages, but I do understand the need. And sometimes when you want to send a message to a queue that contains perhaps a JSON payload or um, an entity in JSON, and that's a big entity, then it's bigger than one megabyte, then this makes sense. If the price tag supports your decision, of course. This is one of the default questions I get if I'm teaching the AZ204, the Azure Developer Certification course. And, and one of the modules is about Azure Service Bus and the storage queue and their differences. And when, when should you use which one and how do you configure those? And quite often somebody attending that class, I think it's a four-day training, Quite often somebody asks, so what if I have this 1.5 gigabyte zip file that I need to pass over service bus? What can I use? And I go, well, this is not really intended for that. How about you put that in uh, Azure storage and use, use a message to point to that blob instead of transferring that blob between the services? But it's still nice that uh, the one megabyte limit, it all, always felt awfully small so it's it's nice it's larger now so next on me in public preview uh vpn nat and this is awfully specific but this has been something that i'm occasionally fighting with when building vpn connections uh to and from azure so this new capability will give you support for overlapping private address spaces between different networks. So consider that you would have a branch office. Perhaps you're working at a bank and you have a branch office and that branch office has private IP addresses behind a NAT device in their internal network. And now you're building a site-to-site -site VPN between that branch office and an Azure virtual network. And in the Azure Virtual Network, you, you've um, selected the same private address space as you've already configured for the branch office. And in this scenario, you really couldn't build the traditional side-to-side -side VPN because the address spaces would overlap and the VPN wouldn't really know what, what to route and where. So now with VPN NAT, you can use one-to-one -one static NAT. That's the only supported option. So the dynamic NAT mapping is not supported, at least yet. And this allows you to utilize those existing private address spaces between the different networks, even if they overlap. And the VPN NAT is clever enough now to allow you to create rules that if I'm coming from this sort of a network with these IP addresses and I'm sending traffic to another network in Azure with the same IP addresses, that it can actually make a difference between those two and not get confused. And this requires the VPN gateway second generation, uh, SKUs two through five. So if you have the legacy VPN gateway, it's not supported, obviously, but Already now, you should be moving to the second generation. And once you have that up and running, you cannot take the cheapest one, but the next one is, is the number two SKU. That's then supported. So it's a small addition to a service that's been available in Azure, I think, already almost 10 years. 
But once you enable this, there's plenty of configuration you have to do and plenty of testing, obviously, depending on what sort of a network architecture you have. But I, I feel this is something that I will be using in the future as well. Yeah, interesting. So I think on, on my end, the next update, I have two more updates, really. Uh, that's interesting. And the first one is, again, for developers. It's in preview right now. It's Astra AD authentication for application insights. So I work a lot with tel telemetry. I'm sending a lot of logs to log analytics and app insights. I'm using Azure Monitor a lot because obviously in a distributed cloud environment where we have distributed resources, doing things all over the place, all over the world, spread across the globe in different data centers, we still need to consolidate some of the messages and logging and requests and exceptions and everything that happens. So we kind of see what goes on. Now, one thing with application insights is traditionally anyone can send something to your app insight instance as long as they have the instrumentation key. And I've seen a lot of places where people don't treat the instrumentation key as a secret. They just put it wherever. You can actually Google, and perhaps you don't need to do this, but if you Google for instrumentation key for App Insights, you'll see that there's a lot of people on GitHub which have um, repositories containing their instrumentation keys, and those instances are still live. There are App, Insight, uh, App Insights instances um, you know, spread across the globe where people are perhaps not keen on protecting their instrumentation key. And usually I hear people say, we don't need to protect it because nobody can read the data inside of App Insights. And this is correct. You cannot read it. But there's also no limit on how much data you can ingest and you pay per gigabyte. So what I have seen, and this is perhaps a, a targeted threat in, in a way, I have seen people abuse that. And when they find your instrumentation key, they are sending junk data, first of all. So it's very difficult for you to troubleshoot your application. Um, second of all, they're ingesting large amounts of data that's gonna cost you a lot. It's mostly gibberish, but it's gonna overload the system and you're gonna pay per gigabyte of the ingested data. And that can be a lot. Uh, so be careful with your instrumentation key. So back to the point of this update, Azure AD authentication for application insights. Now we kind of set the scene. Um, so now with Azure Active Directory, you have AD support for Azure Monitor App Insights, allowing for only authenticated users to send telemetry. And then you can discard the rest. Um, so then you can opt out of local authentication. You can ensure that only telemetry that is exclusively authenticated using uh, either managed identities or uh, Azure AD is ingested. That means if someone has your instrumentation key, that doesn't matter. If they are not authenticated, they cannot send a request. For me, this is great news because I've been very careful with the instrumentation keys, but I also know that if we misplace it, we have to wipe our app instance, app application um, insights instance, create a new one with a new key, and then the data is lost, right? So there's no way to regenerate a key on an app uh, application insights instance. Um, at least it hasn't been up until now, and I still don't think there is. So if you kind of lose that or someone gets hold of it and starts sending junk data, there is nothing you can do about that. Uh, you know, for a storage account, if you misplace your key, you can cycle the key and then you have a new one. Here is a bit more difficult. So this is a great update. 
So you can go and disable this from the Azure portal uh, if you want to do that, for example. Uh, it's also possible to do using, for example, an Azure policy. And this is worth mentioning again, if you work with Azure policies, you're rolling out uh, a set of policies that should apply to everyone in the organization or all the resources in a subscription or you know, however you define your policies, you can now define that for any application insights uh, instance that you have, it always disables the local auth. That means only matched identities and AED um, identities can actually send telemetry to it as an authenticated request. And this is again, a very welcome update. All my systems work in containers, functions, uh, app services, and you know, a, a bunch of different services. But usually those three are the, the main components that I have in all of my distributed cloud systems. And all of them support managed identities, right? So now I can enhance the security of the ingested data and enhance the reliability to ensure that even if for some reason, you know, who knows why, the telemetry key would be spread with the wind to someone. That doesn't matter because you have to be authenticated. And the only things authenticated in my distributed cloud is the app service, the function apps, and all the containers, nothing else. There is no inbound traffic from anything. Um, so this is a super welcome update. So touching on uh, security um, a little bit and authentication, but it's still in preview, like I said, but super important to understand. And I felt this was also worthy of mentioning in, in this episode because it does touch on application insight and authentication. And these are two topics that are super important. And a lot of people work with app insights. So if you did not know about this, take a look at it if you're a developer or if you're managing operating cloud solutions that rely on Azure Monitor and App Insights, take a look at this uh, and then go to your dev team or your engineering team and say, hey, can we enable this? Unless you're sending anonymous uh, data or data from anonymous clients. We don't do that in our system. We only send telemetry from our own system. We don't have external clients or customers or users sending telemetry from random devices. Everything happens server-side from authenticated systems. Super welcome update. So this is definitely an update I, I did not know I needed, but I, I will be sure after this episode to go and enable the Azure AD authentication for application insights for sure. Next on me, I'm sort of continuing on the security angle. Uh, in public preview, Azure Bastion host standard SKU is announced and now available. So Azure Bastion host, that's the, the hosted VM instance from Microsoft that allows you to remotely connect to your resources, your VMs mostly um, securely so that you don't have to maintain this sort of a jump server yourself, but Microsoft will will maintain, update, and patch the box for you and keep it always up and running. And it's been available as a basic SKU for quite some time now, but now there's a standard SKU. And this allows you to scale the number of VM instances between two and 50. Two is the minimum. And the main difference between the, the, uh, the standard and basic is that the standard has the instances the basic doesn't have, it will just have those two instances and you cannot scale those. But for now, nothing else differs. But I read from Microsoft Docs that 
they 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 sort of hint that that future configuration settings could be adjusted through the standard SKU as well. And if you're already running Azure Bastion in a basic SKU, you can upgrade to standard in Azure Portal. And for pricing, and this I think has been a slight problem with Bastion Host, it isn't free. And the standard one is about 180 euro per month. But since you need to have two instances minimum, there's an additional cost of 11 cents per hour for the second uh, unit. So that translates to about 260 euro per month when you have two instances up and running. Plus you pay for the outbound data transfer. The first five terabytes is free. And beyond that, you, you pay for the outbound traffic. So it's a welcomed addition especially if a large enterprise is heavily invested in Azure Bastion. But at the same time, it will add this fixed cost because it will always be running. So the cost will always be there. And I've, I've sort of realized with, with uh, different companies that they carefully consider that would it be easier or more scalable for them to set up their own jump servers or use Azure security centers just in time connection or just use a firewall and grant the permissions as needed. But even then, it's a useful addition, even though I, I feel it's slightly pricey compared to the basic one. Yeah, okay, makes sense. Interesting update. I haven't worked that much with Azure Bastion. Uh, obviously, again, not working that much with VMs, but I've kept my eye on that. And I think this is an interesting update as well. So I think the final thing on my end is, again, for developers, like I mentioned in the start of this episode, I had a lot for devs. And this is a preview update as well. API management, which we have talked a lot about in this show. Uh, we've briefed on it a couple of times uh, from different angles. Um, API management and event grid has an integration. So it's a marriage of two great things. So API management can now publish events to event grid to send event notifications to other services and trigger kind of downstream processes. Just like we, I think we talked about, and I wrote some articles in the past about key vaults and event grid, whenever your secret is about to expire, you can trigger an event. Or if your secret has expired, unfortunately, then you can trigger an event. Same thing here. When something happens with API management, you can trigger an event. And with event grid in Azure or Azure event grid, you can do whatever you want. So you get an incoming webhook kind of, and you can uh, subscribe to that with a function or you can do a logic app or you know do with it whatever you want. So for example, you trigger an event whenever a new user is created. Perhaps someone goes and say, well, I'm now signing up for your API. And they do this with the API management developer portal or whatever, which comes with API management. And when that happens and they create the account, you get a notification over the event grid and you can decide, well, now I need to send this to my, whatever you have, third-party uh, service like Chargebee or PayPal or you know whatever kind of system you might want to send this data to and say, well, we just got a new user. Now let's take care of him or yeah, do whatever you want. So there's a lot of business logic you can kind of tie in here. So the... Integration is simple in the sense that, well, something happened in API management, send a message, right? Just send it to the event grid. But then the business cases where you can actually now take action on things 
is big. And I think we mentioned that in, in one of the episodes we talked about in the past as well, that with Azure Event Grid, you can design one solution. So you can design a single solution if you want, where your entire organization starts shipping things to Event Grid. And then you, in your Event Grid solution or your Event Grid code, however you want to deal with it, you can design a solution where you deal with incoming messages. For example, you have integrations to third-party providers. You need to send a notification. You need to send a webhook. You need to trigger a function. You need to schedule something. You need to whatever. doesn't matter what the business requirement is, but if it runs over Azure Event Grid and your Key Vault does and your API management does and storage account or whatever, whatever else you integrate with Azure Event Grid, you can have the same kind of logic deal with the incoming messages. And that's kind of what I like with integration points. You don't have to have a now a custom API for API management where you build custom code inside of API management to deal with a new user being registered. Don't have to do that. A new user registered, it triggers an event. You don't deal with that. Azure deals with that. So it's off your table. You just get the message into Azure Event Grid, and then you decide what's going to happen with it. And then you can build your business logic around that. So you don't have to build specific logic for that specific service, but instead you build specific logic for that message, for the event, for what was happening. In this case, a user was created. So I, I think that is pretty interesting. And the, the same if someone goes and creates a subscription in API management, then maybe you need to trigger something in your CRM system or whatever. You don't have to put that code inside of API management or your methods or anything like that. You just subscribe to event grid. When that happens, you can trigger a function or you can run a container job or you can do whatever you want and then take care of it that way. And I really like that. That's a super welcome change as well. I, I feel this is great. And with API management now available in the consumption tier as well, I, I feel it's much more accessible and, and obviously much cheaper now than previously. And, and with this addition, I, I can foresee so many different business uh, options or, or benefits for businesses in, in utilizing API management even more. The last one, I saved the last one on my list, the, the best one I feel. So in public preview, but this won't be available before August 2nd, Windows 365. And this was announced during Inspire 2021, which has just taken place. And it's, it's a virtual only event this year. And Windows 365 is a streamed virtualized version of Windows 10 and Windows 11 in the future from the cloud. And it's similar to Azure Virtual Desktop, which used to be called Windows Virtual Desktop. And obviously Microsoft has a really long history of virtualizing desktops in the cloud or in on-premises. So for now in Azure, you've had Azure Virtual Desktop that allows you to span up farms of desktops in the cloud and your users can hop onto those to either run an application or get the whole desktop. But the challenge with AVD is that it's fairly complex because it's built and optimized for flexibility. So you need an on-premises AD. In most cases, you need the Azure Active Directory configured. You need all sorts of things just to get those virtual desktops up and running. And Windows 365, I feel, is, is more of a SaaS application 
perhaps targeted for Microsoft 365 customers. They might have users with uh, tablets like iPads or Samsung tabs or, or fairly good phones, but they're not Windows 10s or Windows 11s. Or even they have older desktops and they need to run a more modern workload that's all, always available, always up to date, always patched. And that's where I feel Windows 365 will fit the best. Pricing hasn't been announced beyond it's going to be per user. And I, I sort of deducted from the short pricing announcement that it's going to be a fixed monthly price per user. And this is optimized for simplicity and it, it integrates with Microsoft Endpoint Manager, but you can also just spin up a few Windows 365 virtual desktops in the cloud and start using those. And even if at home I'm using a workstation, I have a laptop, I might still spin one up during the preview because then I would know I would always have a warm standby workstation in the cloud that's secured and allows me to do whatever on almost any device that can remotely access that one. So yeah, that's pretty interesting. And the way I understand that is, so you get kind of a, a managed VM for, for Windows uh, in a sense. And because initially I thought Windows 365, you know, stream Windows from the cloud. Well, how do I boot my computer if I'm offline, <laughs> right? But I, so my take is you boot your no normal operating system, whatever that is. And then you connect to Windows in the cloud and you get the full experience. Is that it? Exactly. And nothing is stopping you to do this today already. So spin up a VM in Azure, configure it as you like, and you have your desktop in the cloud. But obviously that entails with configuring the remote access options, figuring out the licensing, figuring out the disks and, and everything else, and then sort of tweaking that every week and maintaining backups and all of that. And even if there's not enough technical details available yet for Windows 365, I feel, because it's built for simplicity, that it's a plug and play solution. You spin one up, it's there. You don't really care how it's built eventually. You just want to have a performant VM acting as your desktop in the cloud. And it's all, always available for you. All righty. I think these were all the updates that we had and we have the links to all of the announcements in the show notes. And the last thing we have is the unexpected question. Let me ask you, what's the absolute best thing you can prepare on a barbecue, but people just don't know it yet, perhaps? <laughs> okay. So I think this is perhaps the most important update of this show. I have two things. And these are taken by experience uh, from events where I have hosted barbecues or hosted dinners where I prepare the food on, on the grill. And every time people are surprised. So perhaps this is going to feed that, that answer a little bit. So two things. Number one is grilled avocados. You don't hear that often, or I don't hear that often at least. Usually you hear about an avocado being thrown down into a, a salad or, you know, whatever people do with avocados. I actually have an entire book, which is about one thing, avocados. In that book, I learned that you can grill avocados. You cut them in half, you remove the core, 
And then you can, you know, put some, some whatever you want on them, some seasoning or in, in marinades or whatever, but put them on a hot grill and make these really nice Weber. If I use the Weber with the uh, not too thin, um, you know, grill bars. So, so wide grill bars just makes a really nice look for the avocado as well. You get these diagonal grill bars and you do that and you serve them. You can eat them with a spoon or you can just put them as a side to your uh, grilled meat or fish or veggies or whatever is your preference. Super cool, super appreciated, except of course, if you hate avocados, then putting them on the grill is probably not going to make it better. It's not going to make it worse either, but obviously if you don't like them, then uh, you know it's your prerogative not to actually eat them. So that's number one. Then number two is cheese. You often hear about, oh, I put some grilled cheese on the burger. That's not actually grilling cheese. That is just the name of a cheese where you put that on the burger. It's called grilled cheese. Now, if you take an entire, I don't know if you call them in English, a pie, like a, a cheese pie, we say when you have an entire round cheese of camembert or brie or you know, one of the, the better cheese you can you can have, Put them on a, in my case, again, uh, sounds like I'm doing a promotion here for Weber grills. <laughs> uh, put them on a, a wooden, one of those wooden smoking plates. Uh, put the cheese on top of that, because if you put the cheese on top of the grill bars, it's going to float straight down. It's going to melt straight through. So you put a, put this on a, I'm sorry, this is becoming a long explanation, but it was an important question. Uh, put them on the, on the wooden board. And this is a smoking board. So it's going to uh, start smoking your cheese. Uh, so the cheese is going to melt on the inside, but the casing of the cheese, however you call that in English, I'm sorry, I'm not a culinary chef. I don't know the, the words of those things, but like kind of the skin of the cheese or whatever you call it, the thing you cut through, that's going to be intact when you smoke it. So you smoke it on the grill, perhaps for 20 minutes or whatever. And then uh, halfway through, you put some marmalade or something like this on top, uh, like a chutney. And then you smoke it for another 10 minutes. Then you take it out and you serve it immediately in the middle of the table where your guests are sitting. And you give everyone a spoon or a knife or whatever you want and a small plate and some crackers. Because you all know you can have wine and cheese and you have some crackers. But now you have wine, maybe. You have the cheese, you just smoked it, and you have a few crackers or bread on everyone's plate. And everyone, and this needs to be done at the same time, uh, digs into the cheese because as soon as you put the knife in or a, a spoon in, everything will just pour out on top of the table. So everyone does it at once and takes a part of the cheese to their plate. And then you have this smoked, creamy, hot cheese going on top of these biscuits or crackers, whatever you have. And that's going to go really well with like an Amarone or a Ripasso, or if you want the lighter side of the, the Northern Italy wines and maybe a Valpolicella Classico or something like this. It's going to be a killer night. You are going to amaze your guests and it's going to be awesome. And obviously, if any of you tuning in want to ever come to a barbecue with, with me, I'll, I'll make sure to give you, um, you know, a taste of this. So I, I guess that was a five-minute explanation and answer <laughs> to a very short question, but I really like food. So there you have it. It's, it's fairly late now in Finland, and I am now tempted to walk across the street to the grocery store to get some cheese and avocado, <laughs> <laughs> because I know I don't have either one in the fridge right now, 
And yeah, I might not do start the grill today, but the weekend is coming, so I'll keep this this in mind. Sounds out. sounds delicious for sure. Excellent. Thank you again for tuning in. This was episode 91 on Azure updates. And uh, let's talk more next week. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.